Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the EMG Gold podcast. My name is Mark Koskela, Head of Marketing here at EMG Health, and today I am very excited to be joined by Rodrigo Garcia, who is Head of Patient Centricity Recruitment and Retention at Merck KGAA's biopharmaceutical business, EMD Serrano. Rodrigo is a physician by training with a master's in clinical research administration from George Washington University and holds 17 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry. After a lengthy career at Bristol Myers Squibb, where he focused on medical analytics, he now works exclusively in clinical trial innovation at EMD Serrano, using data-driven approaches to bring clinical trials into the 21st century, improving enrollment and retention as he does so. So welcome to the podcast, Rodrigo. Thank you, Mark. I'm doing very well, and I'm very excited to join you in this. Great, and great to have you. Firstly, let's touch on why it's so important to have diverse patient populations in clinical trials. So could you please talk us through why this is such a pragmatic goal, as well as the impact this will have on patients and drug development? Thanks for the question. So diversity in clinical trials has always been a very important and at the same time, difficult topic. Why? There is a multiple reasons why, uh, and I know we're going to talk about that later. But to answer your question, <clears throat> I would say that ideally, the patients that we enroll in the clinical trials should match the real world, if you will, of patients that are eventually going to receive the drugs that went through the drug development process. It is extremely important to have pragmatic approaches and strategic approaches in which we will be able to secure ideally this match of patients in the clinical trial with the real world population. It is also really important because again, what has happened in the past is that there is an unbalance related to the representation of patients in the clinical trials, particularly if we focus from a underrepresented populations. So it is, it is very well known, and this is data that has been published multiple times by CDC, FDA, etc., in which from a minority population um, perspective, there is only around 5% of patients participating in clinical trials from a minority population perspective. And that includes, obviously, Hispanics, Latinx, African-Americans, Asians. And then when you focus in each specific group, the representation is even less. Unfortunately, as I was saying, we want the drugs, right? And the objective is that the drugs will be um, used by all patients that are suffering the diseases. So there are a lot of issues that are not helping us to recruit those patients. But at the end of the day, the goal is that those patients will benefit from the drugs. So it is a very important topic. 2020, for sure, has... Uh, reinforce the importance of double down the efforts to make sure that we're bringing those minority populations in the clinical trial. But I would say this has been tried before, and I don't think we have really moved the needle as much as we wanted to. And it's because there is no one silver bullet. It has to be addressed from multiple perspectives in order to actually start moving towards the right direction. Great, thank you. And, and well, that's fascinating, and particularly when you cited the, the, the 5% statistic there. I, I guess clinical trial enrollment, diversity and retention has long been a challenge for the, for the pharmaceutical industry. From the data you've analysed, what's the root of these challenges? 
Sure. So as I was trying to explain, or I just brought it up in my previous answer, Mark, um, the reason there is not one single reason, and that is one of, or that is the reason why it's extremely difficult um, to tackle this problem. That doesn't mean that we're not tackling the problem, but to answer your question, there are multiple reasons. Um, we need uh, rep diverse representation of the physicians and sites who are helping us to recruit the patients. And we tend to go, pharma in general, we tend to go to the same sites. Um, we tend to go to the top performers, the very experienced sites. But it is also well known that most of the research, and I'm speaking here from a US perspective, it's happening most of the time in certain percentage of sites. So new sites, new physicians, particularly physicians at the community level, um, it's harder for them to get access to research and then contribute by bringing their own patients. So we need diversity of sites and physicians. But that's only one thing. We need to gain trust from the community. We need to get trust from patients. Um, trust is extremely difficult to gain and it's extremely easy to lose, right? So trust is really important. We need to engage um, with a diverse patient population, right? So our recruitment strategies they need to have a fit-for-purpose approach, and they need to tackle all patients. Our materials and the way we communicate to, uh, about our studies, they need to uh, be focused in all patients, or so they need to be properly translated. They need to reflect the actual patients that we want to recruit. From a study design perspective, it is extremely important, and the FDA in 2020, they released uh, a new guidelines and recommendations for making the clinical trials more inclusive, and they, very, they have very clear and tactical recommendations talking about study design, saying that you know, we have to make sure that the inclusion-exclusion criteria make sense. We're not automatically excluding patients that should not be excluded. We need to gather feedback from patients, from advocacy groups related to study design as early as possible. So when we finalize a study and we're ready to start recruiting for patients, that study design is not only uh, making sense and is very strong scientifically speaking, but it also makes sense and is strong and includes feedback from patients. So again, that is one key element, real-world data. Real-world data is becoming extremely, and has been, but real-world data is becoming more and more important. So real-world data, I don't think, is here to solve the problem. It's, it's more an enhancer of the study design, of the, the, uh, helping us to make data-driven decisions in order to secure or to make us feel more confident that the study design, the type of patient population that we're bringing, etc., is the right one. So leveraging real-world data, uh, working with the community, having diverse sites, diverse physicians, bringing the voice of the patient in the study design, etc. All those things need to be done very well with a fit-for-purpose approach if you want to tackle this problem. Great. Thank you, Rodrigo. Great to hear about this kind of multifaceted um, approach there. One of the elements you, you touched upon was, was one of trust. And historically, there have been some questionable practices when it comes to clinical trials. How much of a barrier is this trust among some patient populations? And how can we rebuild this trust to ensure transparency? 
Great question. Uh, yes, to your question, it is it is really difficult. It is really important to tr- uh, to work on trust. So, I would say, from my perspective, um, you know, again, it's on how to gain trust from the community. I think one, you have to work with the community, and that means you have to go to the places where where patients and the community are located. And I'm talking about the churches. I'm talking about the, um, I would say, gatherings, uh, unofficial gatherings where people get together to discuss their priorities, etc. You need to reach out to those groups and be transparent. Communicate why we're doing this. These are the different studies. Provide all the necessary documentation. But again, documentation that is going to be relevant to them. Right, documentation that has been translated that they will understand. It meaning is that is not too scientifically, uh, you know, heavy, and information that they can take home, digest, discuss with their primary care physician, with their family, friends, etc. Right. So, I th- I would say trust is we need to reach more to the community. We need to be very transparent as much as we can, obviously. And it's also, it's not one-way street. We want to hear from them, but it's very important once that we hear from them that we act upon that feedback, right? It's very important to listen to them, but then act upon that. So trust is really important, gaining trust. And I think we're not there yet. And definitely in the past, right, there has been a lot of uh, studies Uh, The Tuskegee study comes to mind right away, which was done a long time ago. But definitely those are cases where trust has been negatively impacted. And as I said before, it is really difficult to gain people trust again. So I I would think strong communication, working with the community, working with the patients, gather their feedback, act upon the feedback is key. Really interesting. In, in terms of acting upon that patient feedback and that kind of feedback feedback loop, is is that a channel that you try to keep open communications with? Or sure. <clears throat> so I would say within EMD Serrano, absolutely. So it is not only within my group. I have the pleasure to work with multiple functions within the company that they, you know, they're working on this. They have a strong connections with advocacy groups, right? Uh, we held events at least once a year um, where we bring advocacy groups, we bring actual patients, and we discuss. We discuss multiple topics, right? And, and I have a section where I present our strategy, right? Our goals uh, with a focus on, obviously, clinical trials, with a focus on diversity of patients in our clinical trials and I ask for feedback. We held this meeting last year and I literally asked for feedback, give us feedback. Uh, what does this resonate with you? Does, does these measures of success resonate with you? Are we doing things correctly? Because, you know, we believe we know what we're doing. We have very smart people here with lots of experience, but we're only going to grow and we're only going to make sure that we're doing things the right way by getting feedback from patients. So yes, within our company, we work with advocacy groups, 
we work with patients, we made a public statement available about the patient-focused drug development and what, how we're doing that, how we're being patient-focused. So that is a key piece, but that is one of many uh, opportunities and efforts that we have to continue to bring patient centricity in the activities that we do related to drug development. Okay, thank you, Rodrigo. That's absolutely fascinating. So to, to move the discussion on, when we talk about clinical trial innovation, we must address virtual and decentralized trials. Why do you think widespread implementation wasn't actioned sooner and how's it been affecting enrollment, retention and overall effectiveness? Yes, great question. You cannot be talking about this without having a decentralized question. So I think it's a great question. Decentralized capabilities have been tried and implemented before 2020, for sure. Uh, I would say they, and there are obviously a great examples. And, you know, uh, in 2010, I believe there was the first, uh, if you will, official virtual study being done by a pharma company, etc. So decentralized capabilities have been tried and implemented before. We uh, implemented a couple of decentralized capabilities before, you know, 2020. What has changed with 2020 is the need, the value, and the uh, urgency to scale up those decentralized capabilities in clinical trials. So I think one of the silver linings of the horrible, you know, uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic crisis has been the need to accelerate the flexibility of how we execute our clinical trials to hopefully match as much as we can without jeopardizing patient safety and the quality, obviously, of the studies, uh, the specific needs of the patient. Uh, and that applies, you know, talking about home health nursing, that applies to if we can have telemedicine, if we can have direct-to-patient study drug shipment. Uh, I'm not going to lie. It comes with these challenges. Why? Because each country, in a global clinical trial, each country has their own regulations. And during 2020, each country, I would say, there was a lot of flexibility, but happening and fluctuating every other week. So in my case, it was really important to follow how local regulations were changing and then to adapt. Some things were not able to be done you know, the month of March of 2020, and then by the month of a of May, that country was completely open to try that. So um, that has helped. The flexibility helped a lot to implement more decentralized capabilities. And I would say internally also, uh, it gave us uh, a very much needed boost to go big, right? Um, I would say uh, 2021 and moving forward, I'm sure we're not going to go back on the contrary. Uh, but it still, it still underscores the need to uh, understand and measure everything that we're doing uh, and to confirm the value, not only from an economic or business perspective, but also from a patient perspective. Not all decentralized capabilities should be implemented in all studies. Again, it has to be implemented with a fit-for-purpose approach. So it is very important that once that you start doing something differently, you get the confirmation from a business perspective, but even more important from a patient perspective and also from a science perspective that they are bringing meaningful value to them. 
If that is not the case, I don't care, you know, how flashy the new capability is or not, it's not going to be used. You can, I can assure you that if it's something valuable, patients and sites are going to adopt them. And obviously, if they are adopting it, it's because it's value to them and it's helping them to get back on their lives as much as they can. So that's what we want to replicate. And what does has, is not working as expected, then we have to eliminate. That's um, pretty interesting and, and, and fascinating to hear a bit about um, how you had to adapt to those regulation changes through the through the pandemic. Um, so the, the impact of these decentralized virtual trials sounds overwhelmingly positive. So are there any challenges associated with implementing digital health technologies into clinical trials that, that we also need to consider moving forward? I would say, great question for sure. Yes, there are a lot of challenges, meaning when you're implementing, from a business perspective, implementing decentralized capabilities definitely comes with challenges. Uh, from an you know, IT perspective, it has its challenges. We want to make sure that the data is high quality. We want to make sure that we receive the data as needed, that there is no issues related to the sites. We're not paying, we're not putting any additional burden on our sites and definitely on our patients. And I would say it is, it, it is not that easy. It is easier said than done. Because if you bring a new capability, a new technology, you need to bring new, new training. You need to bring new expertise. And that means that you have to train people. People need to get comfortable. And when I mean people, I mean not only the size, but patients. So I would say the challenge is ideally all these capabilities should diminish the burden on patients and sites. But from my experience, that is not always the case. So that is going to be an important challenge for us, making sure that anything new that we're bringing is for lowering and is actually lowering the burden of patients and sites. And as I, as I was saying before, if that is not the case, then probably there is no long-term future for that capability. At the same time, there is also, you know, there is also the, the positive side, which is for some of these capabilities, we are gathering and we're getting quantitative and qualitative positive feedback from sites and from patients in which they say, yes, I participated leveraging this decentralized capability and I like it. The feedback is positive. I want to continue using this service from the company. So obviously when we get that type of positive feedback, we have to make sure that we translate that into positive benefits for the business and for the patient. So we continue to implement that in future studies. Great, no, thank you. Um, thank you, Rodrigo. Um, absolutely fascinating. Um, and, and presumably the more, the more decentralized um, virtual trials you run that to bring things back round, presumably, gives the potential to to meet those requirements around uh, a, a diverser group of uh, patient populations. Definitely, that's the idea. So in theory, decentralized capabilities, one of the benefits is that it will bring patients and communities that usually 
they do not have access to the clinical trials, if you will. If you have in a clinical trial telemedicine and you have a digital recruitment campaign and you have, you're leveraging social media, uh, the concept behind that is, or the objective is more patients, more, more patient population are going to hear our message and they're going to, we're going to gain their interest because unfortunately they have that disease. And then we're, we're increasing access to the clinical trials. Now I have to say, Mark, that that's the goal, that's the objective, but at the same time, some of the minority populations, they don't have access to, they still don't have access to broadband connection. They still don't have 5G connection. They still don't have Wi-Fi. So we have to remember that decentralized capabilities are the tool. They are not the solution. How we use the tools is going to help us to get closer to a solution. So I've been hearing a lot of back and forward about, yes, the idea of decentralized capabilities is to increase access to the clinical trials, but we have to be very mindful that there are minority populations or in general patient populations that they still struggle to get access to Wi-Fi. So if your decentralized capability heavily depends on having a good Wi-Fi connection, then you might already be setting your, you know, setting for failure rather than success. So we need to have a fit for purpose and a very mindful approach when we're leveraging decentralized capabilities. It is a tool. It's probably not the solution, particularly when you are one to reach out to these minority populations and help them to get access to these clinical trials. And thank you. Really, really interesting. And, and I guess this is a challenge faced by the pharmaceutical industry that, that other industries around the world are also, also facing. That's correct. So just to um, to wrap things up, our final question today. So, so you live in the town of Bill Ricker in Massachusetts in the United States. Can you tell us one thing the town's known for and the best place to visit if any of our listeners happen to be passing by? Great question. I would say is well known. Well, let me stop there, Mark. Sorry for this. So I have to be honest. I So I've been in Massachusetts for two and a half years. Um <laughs> I don't know what Bill Rica is known for. <laughs> That's okay. And, and I, you know, of the two and a half years, one year I spent in my house. So okay. I, I don't think I can answer that question. <laughs> no, no, it sounds like uh, probably been um, lots of Netflix or, or, or things rather than going out and seeing any interesting sites. <laughs> Thank you, Rodrigo. So it's been inspiring to learn about what you and your organization are doing to overcome traditional approaches and mindsets to clinical trials. Thank you so much for joining me today to share your thoughts. So that's all we have time for this week, but don't forget to check out our digital magazine at www.emg-gold.com for plenty of articles, interviews, and news on everything and anything related to pharma. And remember to tune in every Tuesday for more insights from great thought leaders like Rodrigo in and outside of the industry. So thank you for listening, take care, and see you next time on the EMG Gold podcast.